So, um, Genesis 37, your handouts only have from verses 12 following, but I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to start in verse 1. So, why don't you guys uh, look down at the passage, I'll read, I'll pray, and, and then we'll consider this awesome passage of Scripture. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. All right. Check number one. He's a little tattletale, man. We don't need that up in here, right? Verse three. Now Israel, now who's Israel. Jacob, we looked last week where Jacob wrestled with God <clears throat> and this mysterious man, I guess God, called his name Israel. So sometimes in Genesis we'll see <clears throat> that the name Jacob and Israel are used synonymously. So same person. So we have here Israel. Now Israel, catch this, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, have we seen this before in this guy, Jacob, loving someone more than other people? <coughs> where, where do we see this? With this two wise Leah and Rachel, literally says, and he loved Leah, uh, Rachel more than Leah. So he's kind of known for this favoritism thing. So if you're uh, a good kid who got raised in church, you probably saw the movie Joseph and the coat of many colors, right? Um, kind of burned in your, your minds forever. Um, <clears throat> so verse four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. I wonder why. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brother and said, as if the first time he didn't catch the lesson, right? Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father even rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture the, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. 
Come, now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, the oldest brother, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pits here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way, carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders <clears throat> passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe <coughs> of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray as we come to this story that its familiarity with us wouldn't... Um, that it wouldn't lose its meaning and its comfort and its wonder. Lord, I pray that we would see how, even though your name is not mentioned in the story, that you are sovereignly in charge. So, Father, I pray for our time as we look at the story, and we pray a blessing over our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to share a story that I'm kind of ashamed to share. Um, I believe it was in the eighth grade, I was riding the bus. And uh, when you ride the bus, any of you hear bus riders by chance? Just a few, not many. Um, you kind of get into your systems, right? You kind of get into your normal, you kind of sit in the general the same seats, not always, but you're kind of just used to seeing the same people and it, it kind of it becomes predictable. Um, and that was definitely true of my 25 minute bus ride home from school every day. And I had my two best friends, Brad and Justin. And uh, one day, though, one of the buses of the high school broke down. And it was, the, uh, it was a high school route and a junior high route. And they had the same route to where we lived. But, so they, they um, made us go pick up a bunch of high schoolers. And that was fine. My older brother was on that bus. And I knew some other kids in my neighborhood or high schoolers because you know, I was only a few months away from being in high school myself. But uh, when, when, when things on the bus for a 25, 30-minute bus ride go out of, like, predictability, just, like, 
people throwing paper everywhere, it's loud, you know, sit down, no one's sitting down, the windows are down, so you can barely hear people talk. And I remember my friend Brad <clears throat> got like some piece of paper, got it wet, and just like threw it back really quick. And I, I remember watching it happen, and it went all the way back, and it hit some uh, lead cowboys in, our, in my hometown, and hit some cowboy, a cowboy hat on, and hit him in the face, and he like, like, was like mortally offended, even though there was a paper, paper flying everywhere. And he saw that was my friend Brad. My friend Brad didn't even look to see where I went. And um, <clears throat> next thing you know, um, I see like three guys in the back like kind of huddled up and pointing towards our direction. And then I realized that uh, they didn't get off at their bus stop. And then to the next bus stop, they didn't get off. And then it was time for us to get off. And so we were ahead of them and we got off. And uh, I cross the street and go my way and Brad goes this way. But I notice that these guys get off and they begin to follow Brad. And right then and there, my heart just starts beating really fast. I get flushed, um, kind of scared. So uh, I, I, I'm not really thinking straight, but I, but I pick up rocks, uh, I put them in my pocket. You can laugh, it's fine. But at the time, like, I was actually pretty scared because these guys are like seniors in high school and my friend Brad and um, I remember my friend Nathan saying like, dude, those guys are gonna like hurt Brad. Like we should do something. And I was kind of like, uh, uh, uh. And my friend Nathan like runs across the street and he sees Brad's mom like down the road talking to someone. So he runs as fast as he can to get to Brad's mom. And next thing I know, these guys like start running and chasing after Brad and they grab him by the backpack and they lift him up, right? And they're doing all these things and, and he's kind of, and I'm, I'm sitting there with rocks in my pockets. And next thing I know, his mom comes and get off my son and da 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 da. Um, but the shame I felt in that moment of not being there for my friend. And I tell you what, like he, he held that over my head for a while. And rightly so. I mean, like, he was saying, like, dude, I'm not even that close to this other guy, Nathan. And he was there, like, ready to, like, get punched for me. But you, and my other friend did it too, Justin, like, he's equally culpable. Where were you? Right? And, and, and I, I, I don't know why I thought of that story, but, I mean, there's something about, like, you should... Trust that your friends are going to be there when things go down, right? And more than that, you should trust your own family and your own brothers to be there for you. And I, I think the real reason I bring this up, because what I think this passage, passage um, flushes out for us, is when bad things happen, when unjust things happen in your life, when suffering occurs, I think our question can be a lot like my friend Brad's question, where were you? But instead of another person, we usually ask it to God. Where were you? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, <clears throat> there's actually a movie, uh, The Life of Joseph. Uh, it's actually a pretty good movie. I, I really like it because I feel like it depicts kind of how I read the story a little bit, but there's a scene where Joseph, Joseph is in prison and it's like thundering and raining and he just got whipped or something and he's like kind of like this sad, pitiful 
face looking out into like the thunder and he's saying like, where are you? Why me? You know, Joseph is yelling to God of like, why are you allowing all this to happen? Isn't it interesting that in this story, God is never mentioned once? I, I don't know about you, but like this passage to me represents what happens on a daily basis. Um, extreme forms of injustice where people are put into pits for things that they don't deserve to. Um, family dysfunctions, right? Um, um, pride. I mean, as much as we, we, we want to sympathize with Joseph, there, there, he had sin in his life, right? And so the question for us that I think um, Genesis 37 is trying to get us to address is, is what do you find your hope in? What do you find your peace when things don't go well? When things don't go well. So <clears throat> with that said, I'm going to break down this passage, just a few different things and, and bring up a few points. Um, and we're going to come back to this theme of um, how God is in control, even when we can't see it. Um, now, the first thing I want to talk about is just the family dynamics here, right? So this is something we've seen over and over and over again in Genesis. I think every single time we've looked at these characters, like kind of zoomed in a little bit, we have seen that Abraham lied twice about his wife being his sister, right? Uh, we have seen um, favoritism. We have seen uh, polygamy. We have seen women being sold into uh, to marriage, quote unquote, right? Uh, we see um, Jacob lying to his blind father, pretending to be his, his twin brother in order to receive the inheritance, right? We see a lot of scheming. We see Laban kind of deceiving Jacob. And so Jacob, <clears throat> you know how they say uh, the, 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 the neighborhood bullies grow up, right? They don't ever actually stop being bullies. They just grow up and become mean bosses or whatever. Jacob grows up. He has a bunch of kids, all these different women. And in essence, he's still, in a, in a way, the same person. Creates favoritism. And something that happens with Joseph is that he becomes someone who develops a sense of pride. Develops a sense of pride. So go ahead, do me a favor, look at verse 5 of chapter 37. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, in one sense, Joseph was 17. How many of you here are 17 years old? We got two of you. Woohoo, right? So I'm assuming the two of you, Catherine and Haley, that you probably have enough um, self-aware skills, enough situational awareness to know that if people don't like you already, you don't go up to them and start bragging about how they're going to one day bow at your feet, right? I think we all just kind of, I don't know what, what the age is where you learn that, but I think it's before 17, right, that these people... They don't seem to like me. They talk bad about me. They, they're never peaceable. Maybe I probably shouldn't go and flex my pride muscle a little bit at them, right? But Joseph, nah, I'm going to ignore that wisdom. And he's like, guys, I had this pretty cool dream. And guess what? In the dream, I was like the tall, 
kind of crop harvest thing, and you guys are all like weak and bending your knee and all this stuff. Now here's the thing, most of us probably know the story of Joseph already, because what happens? Later in the story, a big famine happens, Joseph is like the ruler of, of Egypt, his brothers come to get grain, and what is the first thing they do? They kneel down before Joseph. It's like, whoa, right? But then, more than that, we have, this, we have this a lot in the story of Joseph, a doubling effect, right? So he does it again. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And it's funny because when his brothers come back again to Egypt after he sends them away the first time, it says that they bow down even lower. And so we'll actually see in the story of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph, that his brothers will bow down to him three different times. Three different times. But there's a sense in which, like, I think it's a good thing for you guys to learn of knowing how to be right but without making people feel like they hate you. Can we all agree that there's, there's, there's a sense in which we are getting a picture here of the ugliness of what pride really does to people, of how pride destroys relationships, right? Let me just say something really quick about pride. The reason why the Bible is so against pride, the reason why we look at this story and we kind of like, oh, it's so ugly, is because pride is counter to the gospel. Let me tell you something. Do you want to know whether or not you really understand who Jesus is and what does it mean to be a Christian? Here's how you know. That genuinely, one of the first things that happens to a person when they understand the grace of God in their life is that it produces humility. If I am saved by grace and nothing that I have done, that instinctively tells me that there is nothing that I can brag about. There is nothing that I could take credit for. I've used this illustration a few times, but I, I just I come back to it because it's the most relevant in my life. Um, I went to college at a Bible school in, in Chicago and uh, made a lot of great friends. And one of my roommates, a really great guy, I was just texting him like this last week about some stuff. He uh, wasn't sure what he wanted to do. He liked to lead worship, but he didn't really feel like that was the, the best career path for him. But he still helps out his church, leads worship all the time, but he needed a job. He was working at Starbucks after he got married, and he's like, man, we're not poor, we're Poe, right? He couldn't even afford the R, right? Uh, they just weren't making it. So he, he networks, he has some friends, he gets in at this new Chicago tech company, and next thing you know, he gets promoted, does some training, on the side he's getting his MBA, promotes again, <coughs> promotes again, promotes again, and then he's making literally, I think, six times as much money as I make. Right? And, and even though as a youth pastor I don't make that much money, six times any salary is a lot of money, right? So he's just killing it, living that little suburb life, right? And there's a moment in which he tells me, it's like, Aaron, listen, I'm really grateful. Grateful for what I have, grateful for my family. But there's a sense in which, like, what should I be grateful to God for? Because at the end of the day, like, I worked really hard. I spent extra hours and time. I got my MBA. Um, people sometimes at my, my work don't know how a kid with a Bible degree got promoted so high, but he's like, I think it's my personality. So like, do I kind of just say, hey God, thanks for my personality that helped me get all these 
raises and promotions and people to like me. In essence, he was struggling with this sense of like, um, man, I guess God did some things, but didn't I do other things? And let me just, I, I just think that's so interesting because I think it's a danger that we all have. We all, like, generally speaking, know that it's, like, important to give God the glory, right? You see athletes. <coughs> athletes are the worst, man. I'm so sacrilegious sometimes. Uh, they're, like, pointing up in the sky. Yeah, but the next thing you know, like, they're, like, flexing their muscles. And, right, every sports interview is the same. You know, we just, uh, we tried really hard today. And, you know, we had a few things go our way. You know, at, at one point, things weren't really working out. But we kind of put our heads together, you know, our rings combined. And, uh... You know, we, we made it happen. We, we got a win today, yeah. It's like, you, you said nothing. You, like, you just said words, right? Um, but there's a sense in which we know, like, we should give God the glory, but at the same time, we really feel like all of it was kind of on us. And so let me just share with you one thing from the Heidelberg Catechism that I found extremely helpful. And at the time, I wasn't really sure what to tell my friend. Um... I think I kind of told him, I was like, well, I think God is a little bit more in control in your life than just, you know, your personality. But, but let me just, let me give you one quick thing here. And we're talking about pride. And so and the, the Heidelberg Catechism, Morse 10 says this. The question is this, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity, prosperity and poverty. In fact, all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And I think one thing I wish I can go back and tell him, tell my friend, is that the doctrine of God's providence, that he is in control of all things, should make us thankful to God when things go well. Uh, you know, sometimes like on the mission trips, I always kind of laugh. We pray for safe travel. You know, we get in a circle right here every time we do a retreat and we get in a circle and say, God, help us arrive safely right? But how many of us actually arrive safely and thank God for it? Right? If we truly believe in God's providence, we will view success and prosperity not as products of our good upbringing, good looks, good intelligence, but ultimately as God's unmerited favor of a good God. So what am I trying to say about pride? Ultimately, guys, listen, every single good thing that you have had happen to your life because God gave it. And pride, what it does is it says, no, I am the maker of my good things. I take credit for it. When in fact, we believe in a God who is the maker of all things and giver of all life and good. And so Joseph here is a little backwards. Joseph here is a good picture of what to avoid because here's what the gospel really produces in us that if I am saved by unmerited favor and grace, that it should cause me to know that I am unworthy of it, I do not deserve it. And therefore, we can be humble and kind to all people. So 
Uh, the story clearly, I think, is a picture about pride and how we should avoid it. And the gospel produces humility, right? But then, even though Joseph is super prideful, now, now just do me a favor. Think about this for a second. Think about the person. Don't say it out loud, please. Think about the person that has maybe at one point in your life just rubbed you the wrong way. Like you just, for some reason, this person uh, just, you have a really hard time dealing with. I'm not trying to say your worst enemy, but just a person who just like, just ain't clicking. The heads are budding, right? Um, I, I find that to be a fascinating thing to actually think of a person and to, to wonder if that person does things to me that are mean and wrong and maybe they're, they're that person who just, if I do something, they're that kind of song, anything you can do, I can do better, Right? It's kind of like the few people can think of, right? It's like, I can't ever have a win with you, right? You always got to one-up me, it seems like. But um, is that person deserving of punishment? Is that person worthy of unkindness? And you guys, let me tell you historically how I've heard a lot of Christians talk about this passage with Joseph. Did you notice a few times, look at verse 24, we see this word. They took him and they threw him into a what? A pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. We actually come across that word a few times. And historically, I, I've heard this passage talked about, preached in such a way where, in essence, the question posed to us listeners is this. What are the pits in your life? What are the pits in your life? But can I just tell you for a second? I don't think that's a helpful way of actually looking at this passage. Because you want to know something? Joseph was thrown into an actual pit. And there are people who suffer grave injustices and are probably thrown into actual pits. Like, even, like, um, I don't know what the reports are and how true they are, but I think there's some truth to them. Just like the last two weeks, like, hundreds and hundreds of Christians who were martyred for their faith. Severe injustices, right? Right? It, it happens in, in, in a world that is broken by sin, in a world in which Cain kills Abel, in a world in which physical harm is a real threat to us. We live in a world where innocent people are thrown into pits. And here's the question. Where were you, God? Why did you allow this to happen? Isn't that the, the question we hear so much from people, the problem of evil? God, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why would God let someone, yes, who has a little bit of pride, be betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit and ultimately sells into slavery. Can I just tell you something really quick? In, in, in Western, modern American thought, here's the thing. We do not like the idea of judgment. We do not like the idea of hell. But let me tell you this. Typically, the people who don't like the idea of judgment or hell are the people who've had the luxury of not having to deal with injustices in their life. You talk to most of the poor people in the world. You talk to so many people who are taken advantage of. 
and the idea of hell and justice are normal things. And I think this, this, this question really comes out in this passage of is why does God allow an innocent person to be thrown into a pit? And I think we, we, we have to think through these questions through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Christ. Because here's ultimately what we know. If you do me a favor, we'll go to the end of the story. I'm going to spoil that for you. But hopefully you read it. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. <clears throat> so uh, the story reconciles. The brothers realize what they did. They're living in the land. The father dies. Jacob dies. In the, in the brothers' minds, all hell broke loose, right? Joseph now is finally going to get his revenge, right? But what did Joseph say? Let me favor. Look at Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 18. So, verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, now, really quick, that's the third time in that story where the brothers bowed down. Okay, I'm coming full circle here. But look what Joseph says to them. Verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here is the tough reality that should ultimately give us hope and comfort. Here it is. Is ready for this? Every single bad thing that has happened to you in your life came not by chance, but through the hand of your heavenly Father. Every single thing that has happened to you is because God sent it for your good. See, that, that, that's hard for us to think about because we have this idea, if God, if you love me, you're gonna let me be happy. You're gonna make things go my way. God, if you love me, you're gonna take away this illness. God, if you love me, you're gonna let this person live. God, if you love me, I'm gonna get into the college I want. God, if you love me, you're gonna... Help me have my picture of life that I really want in my heart. And also, guys, here's what the Bible explains over and over and over again, that yes, God is for you. He loves you. He is working in your life. But here's the thing. It is not typically in the way that we want. And so the doctrine of providence, that, that definition I read for us just a minute ago, it kind of elaborates in the catechism, and it says this. How does the knowledge of providence help us? And here's the answer. Why should me knowing that God sends me the good and the bad in my life be a joy and be a comfort in my life in hard times? Because we know that we can be patient when things go against us. That we can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, how many of you think about the future? You have so much of your lives, right? And for the future... We can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. One of my favorite quotes of all time, this Dutch theologian named Abraham Kupiar says this, there is not one thing in all the cosmos that Jesus Christ does not say, mine. Do me, do, me, do me a favor, guys. Think, think. 
who is writing the book of Genesis? We talked about this before. His name is Moses, prophet, right? And he's probably writing to Jews, to Israelites about to enter the land. And when they're reading this story about brothers denying their brother and trying to kill him and sell him into slavery, what, what message would they have received from that? Because do you want to know one thing that the Israelites had common in their history? Is they were always perplexed by the evil done to them. You think about if, if you're an Israelite who just walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea, you know, not too far in your history, do you know what you remember? You remember the Egyptians killing every single baby boy. If you're an Israelite reading Genesis for the first time, you know what suffering is like. You know that bad things happen over and over and over again to the Israelites, right? And the rest of the Israelites, I mean, it just seems like the Philistines are attacking them, right? Every type of Canaanite tribe is attacking them. They're, they're exiled out, and they, they read this story of people being thrown into a pit, but what ultimately do they see? That God is still sovereignly working for their good. And so what's the point? That even in suffering, take hope. Be comforted. God is working. That it's not the end of the story. That even if we die by the, by the sword, it's not the end of the story. And so again, sometimes in the context of our suffering, we're like my friend Brad, God, where are you? Where were you? And ultimately, like I said, we have to understand this through the lens of the gospel. Think about Joseph for a second. He doesn't know what's going on. I mean, if I was in that pit, and my bro I love my brother. I have two of them, not 11. But if they sold me into slavery, I would cry myself to sleep. I'd be so sad. You know, and for years and years and years, it took Joseph just probably depressed until one day finally realizing what God was doing. But you know what ultimately God did? God used Joseph's suffering to save the people of God. Does that sound familiar? That Jesus, the one true innocent person, was used by God to suffer and to die to save the people of God. See, Joseph is a clear picture of the cross, of where justice and God's holiness are met. Jesus did not deserve to go to that cross. Do not think that for a second. He did absolutely nothing wrong. But what happened? God took that injustice, and he made something really good out of it. Last thing I'll say. Um, I was watching a documentary last week. And um, I don't know, sometimes, you know, the, the documentaries that are kind of like uh, the alarmist documentaries of like, all these people are really bad, be aware. I kind of always am a little, you know, I watch it with a, a watchful eye. But there's a really interesting quote, and they actually showed a clip of a very well-known pastor who people love his teaching. He has a huge following probably has thousands of Twitter followers, and they literally have a quote of him, a video of him saying this. Any definition of God's sovereignty that includes evil and injustice 
is a wicked form of God's sovereignty, a wicked understanding of God's sovereignty. And I, and I, I think about that. I'm like, thousands of people come to you. Thousands of people come to you. And yet you were telling them, hey, if anything evil or injustice happens in your life, God has no part of that. Someone from a life of privilege can probably say that and get away with it. Let me just tell you, that can't be true. Because how in the world would you explain the cross? How in the world would you explain a passage like this? where clearly God was working through the injustice and the suffering and the evil in the world. So this passage ultimately, I think, teaches us this. Trust, be thankful to God. Now, I don't know, I don't have to know everything about you to know that there's things in your life you don't like. There's things you don't prefer. There's things that you wish you could change. But let me tell you, every single thing that has happened to you and that will happen to you, the promotion you get, the promotion you don't get, the school you get into, the school you don't get into, the person you marry, the person you don't marry, the slight from a friend, the compliment from a friend, everything in your life, God is using for your good. And so when we encounter the suffering in the world, sometimes we scratch our heads, we mourn and we grieve, but here's ultimately what we know, like Joseph. What others may mean for evil, God meant it for our good. And ultimately we see this in the cross, where people meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, the story of Joseph and that, God, um, we see in our world suffering and injustice and evil over and over and over again. And, and God, it's just symptomatic of a world gone wrong, a world in sin. But, Lord, we just want to just marvel in how awesome and how big you are. That even though, God, even though human beings are capable of such evil and injustice, God, you can take it and you work it for our good. And, God, more than that, we know and we believe that rain and drought, leaf or blade, that all prosperity, all good things and all bad things come to us, not by chance, but through your fatherly hands. So Lord, let us not imagine you to be a distant, mean, angry God. But God, you, you know every single hair on our heads. God, you know every single thing about us, and you tell us not to fear men, but to fear you. So, Lord, I pray that our minds and our hearts would look to Christ again and again and again, that we would see that ultimately Jesus suffered, died, and bled to save us, to save us from our sins. And, Lord, I pray that when we look and behold the glory of the gospel, the glory of grace, that we would see that, Lord, you are working for our good. God, I pray that when, when the storms of life enter the lives of these students, that they would fix their eyes on Jesus again and again and again. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray this all for your glory, for our good. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.